Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is Political Rewind. Uh, if my voice sounds a little unfamiliar, don't worry, you're in the right place. I'm Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, filling in today for my friend Bill Nygut. Let's get right to it. There have been some big news stories bubbling over the last few weeks and with some big developments in the last day. Uh, following up Savannah Mayor Van Johnson's mask mandate, yesterday Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms announced an indoor mask mandate here in Georgia's capital city. We'll talk more about that and other COVID news in a bit. But first, Georgia Republicans have taken their first steps toward a possible takeover of Fulton County's elections. The idea here is that they will do a performance review of Fulton elections chief Richard Barron. So let's jump headfirst into that conversation. Joining me to discuss all of this and more, first... Mariella Romero, a journalist and regional community empowerment director with Univision. Good to have you here today, Mariella. Nice to be here with you, Kevin. Next, we have Riley Bunch, public policy reporter for GPB News. Thanks for joining us, Riley. Thanks, Kevin. Happy to be here. Uh, also from GPB, politics reporter Stephen Fowler is here. Welcome, Stephen. Good morning, Kevin. And finally, my colleague from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Tia Mitchell, our Washington correspondent. Always enjoy a chance to talk with you, Tia. Good morning. <laughs> okay, everyone. Uh, Stephen, I'm going to start with you because I know you have followed this Georgia election law, um, it seems like, uh, for an awful long time. Uh, so a group of state senators have basically written a letter. And that letter indicates that they have the support to do a review of Richard Barron, who is who runs Fulton County's elections board. Um, why is that important? I mean, why would an, uh, some sort of performance review be so important? I'll explain that. Right. So the 98-page SB 202 that is currently facing eight different lawsuits and is dominating the national conversation about elections does a lot of things. You've probably heard people talk about food and water in line. You've probably heard people talk about absentee ID requirements. But there's a section in the bill that has to do with takeovers of failing or unsatisfactory local election superintendents. Now, in election terms, it's not necessarily the hired person that runs elections, like Rick Barron in Fulton County. Technically, legally, the local elections official superintendent, by law, is the appointed county board of elections. Now, what these lawmakers are doing is they're kicking off or trying to kick off the process to have Fulton County's elections reviewed. State law says that for large counties, if you have at least two state senators and two state House representatives, they can request a performance review. And within 30 days of that request being sent, 
The State Election Board is going to appoint a three-member review board, one person who is a member of the Elections Division of the Secretary of State's office, and two other local elections officials, whether that is a hired superintendent or a member of a county board somewhere else remains to be seen. Those people are going to look into how Fulton County, in this case, will run their elections. Like uh, the law says the oversight of registration, the maintenance and operation of equipment, and so on and so forth. Then they send that report to the Secretary of State and the State Election Board and the local government. And if that happens, either the local county government or the State Election Board could vote to temporarily suspend that county election board and appoint their own person uh, to be the acting superintendent. And Kevin, why this is important is because the superintendent, that's the group or the people that picks the polling places, that listens to voter eligibility challenges, and certifies the results when all is said and done. So Republicans are saying this is something necessary to get Georgia's largest county in shape. Democrats are worried that this could be used to undermine next year's election. Mariella, I don't think it's a coincidence, right, that they've chosen, uh, Republicans have chosen to try this out, I suppose, on Fulton County, which is one of, obviously, the largest, one of the most diverse, and an absolute Democratic stronghold. Yes, but, you know, uh, Kevin, I think that the Republicans need to be very careful because there is a recent study uh, conducted at the Public Policy Institute of California that, uh, you know, they are, the, the, the attacks of Republicans on the uh, access of uh, people getting to the, to the ballot box might result in better outcomes for, you know, all these efforts that they had with people being able to vote have more access because of the pandemic, actually the, 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 uh, the study revealed that it, it helped Republicans in many, many areas. So, you know, those attacks on, on areas where they believe that the Democrats won because of more access to, to, of minority groups, of course, it, 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 it really shows that the Democrats push a lot of people to, to go to the ballot box, but it, it can end up hurting themselves for the Republicans if they continue to attack the access of, of massive groups of people to the ballot box. So they have to be very, very careful with those, those tactics, in my opinion. Um, you know, one of the people who has really uh, stood up and object to this is a Fulton County uh, Commission chair, Rob Pitts. He uh, and I think that we have some some of his comments that that we can play because he clearly sees it as uh, an attack on, on the county. So I'm hoping we can uh, play that, uh, Sam, so that our listeners can hear what uh, Rob Pitts had to say. They're trying to set the stage for a hostile takeover of our election system because they want a political win to appease believers of the big lie which has been my greatest fear since Senate Bill 202 passed. Riley, uh, while uh, Chairman Pitts is, uh, to say the least, incensed about this idea, uh, it, you know, Fulton has had a lot of problems, right? I mean, uh, maybe the uh, some people would think it's about time someone stepped in. 
Well, Fulton has had a lot of problems, which you've seen because it is such a big county and there's so many things to process. But I think it's important to step back and kind of take the bigger political view of this, right? You know, this is what we expected to happen. And SB 202, there were a lot of eyebrow raising provisions, you know, that made national headlines like the water and line warming, you know, ban. But there was also more of a concern of this kind of power grab of Republicans with the state board of elections, with these county boards of elections and elections offices. And, you know, we're seeing exactly what kind of Democrats said on the other side, right, as that's their firepower is that, look, Republicans are moving to take over elections and Republicans on their side say, hey, we have, you know, we put this in place to work and kind of resolve problems in these quote unquote problem counties. And it's not a surprise that we're seeing them target Fulton. So, Tia, uh, uh, Stephen mentioned that that what's going on in Georgia really has captured the national attention. So what does it look like from Washington? And I know uh, this morning you're reporting uh, efforts, uh, the ongoing efforts in, in Washington by Democrats to pass some sort of voter legislation. Right. And it's and it's Georgia comes up every time that members of Congress talk about voting rights and whether there should be a federal law that is really specifically put in place to blunt the impact of state laws like SB 202. Just um, just Wednesday, U.S. Representative Nakima Williams testified in the House committee about the concerns about a state takeover of Fulton County. And then we also are learning that, you know, Senator Raphael Warnock, who has made voting rights big push of his tenure in office, and he talks about it a lot, and he um, has been pushing his fellow Democrats to keep working on the federal legislation because you guys probably remember that last month they tried to push um, a very sweeping bill for the bill known as the For the People Act, and Senate Republicans used the filibuster to block debate on the bill, and so Things have been quiet on that front since then, and a lot of Democrats, some Democrats basically said, well, we tried. Republicans won't let us pass the bill, so we're just going to have to focus on organizing and getting out the vote. And there are many Democrats like Warnock saying, no, that's not enough, you know, especially because they consider these bills as being particularly impactful to black voters. And they're saying to leaders like Biden, Black voters have got you where you are. Black voters are the backbone of the Democratic Party, and you should be working harder to pass federal laws that protect the interests of black voters. So, Stephen, um, I'm going to ask you to do this. I mean, give us, I, I don't know if I'd call them best or worst case scenarios on each side. In other words, if you're the Republicans, how are you going to talk about what's going on here? And if you're the Democrats, how are you going to talk about it? In other words, how far can this really go? What would really happen if it were taken to an extreme? Well, it's important to remember that uh, this county takeover provision has never been used before. We don't actually know what it would look like. We don't actually know how people would decide. I mean, uh, I don't necessarily believe that the Republican members of the state election board are in a hurry to take over any sort of elections. 
Uh, this process also takes a lot of time because there has to be hearings and people have to be given the proper time to investigate things and do things. So this isn't something that's going to be resolved anytime soon. And I think if you're Republicans, that's kind of the point because elections are going to be a big issue in the 2022 legislative session. They're going to be a big issue in the 2022 primary, and they're really going to be one of the main issues with next November's 2022 election. So the longer you have this going and the longer you have investigations and things dripping out about alleged problems with elections and alleged fixes that Republicans are leading, that's the best thing for them. But practically speaking, even if they do end up replacing Fulton's five-member election board with a temporary superintendent, I don't think you're going to see the worst-case doomsday scenario of them not certifying Fulton's votes or closing all the polling places or something. I mean, Fulton Commission Chairman Rob Pitts said that they're exploring every legal option that they have. So this is going to be tied up for a very long time, but Fulton is going to be the scapegoat for this. And now Democrats, on the other hand, I mean, you know, they have used this voting law and the implementation and the pushes for false claims of election fraud and other thing as a rallying cry to really say, look, this is why we need federal voting rights legislation. This is why we need presumably Stacey Abrams to be the next governor. And, you know, this I, I don't want to say that this elections bill has been a gift to them by any means, but this is a very stark contrast for them and the Republican Party to really outline their case to Georgians why they feel they should be in power and Republicans shouldn't. So it sounds like uh, the debate will go on, that we really won't know if Georgia's voting law will have the impact uh, that either side uh, appears to care about until until we have an election, right, Mariella? I mean, you, you've stated that there are, are cases where this is the rallying of Democrats has actually helped with these kinds of, I wouldn't say laws, but just the whole mindset that uh, the ballot box may not be as accessible to some. Correct, correct. And this helps activate activists. Uh, you know, before uh, the last election, um, groups that were uh, in, enrolling Latinos to, to vote in California and Arizona uh, in Texas were not present in, in, in the East Coast. Uh, for example, uh, us, uh, we have been, uh, you know, in, 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 in Arizona, in California, we have seen the rise of groups like Mi Familia Vota, Poder Latinx, etc., to motivate Latinos to, to go to the, to, the, to, to the polls. But those efforts we have been seeing in Georgia or North Carolina, and now those groups are with offices in the, in the state of Georgia, in their opening in North Carolina, etc., because they have seen the, the power of activating the community at the grassroots level. So you have a point that this serves both sides to activate their base. And we're going to see the results only when we have elections. I think we've all touched on it quite a bit. It's it's a lot about perception, right? You know, each side uses this to their advantage for their firepower. Democrats use it to mobilize. And I also think it's important for Republicans to take steps like this right now because there has been evidence that these false claims of election fraud and things like that have depressed their voting base. So if they don't 
act. They don't, you know, make um, movements that shows, hey, there there were, we're going to agree, there were all these problems, and now we're trying to fix them. You know, they run a risk of continuing to lose voter turnout. But they're also talking about in the Georgia legislature, right, coming back, I don't think in the special session that's upcoming, but next year, uh, uh, to get, get get after even more voter legislation, right, Riley? I mean, they're talking about it. Well, I mean, I think the part of it was that this huge, like Stephen always says, 98-page bill was passed so quickly, um, and, and it is so wide-sweeping. The legislators are saying, the Republican legislators are saying, okay, we're going to come back and we are going to look at this because this is going to be a campaign issue, I think, going forward for quite some time. Can I tell you what we're going to do? Uh, let's, let's take a break here, uh, and when we come back, We've got lots of uh, developments around the pandemic that we want to dig into. So you're listening to Political Rewind here on GPB. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Kevin Riley, editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm filling in for Bill Nygut today. Back with me, we have Mariella Romero, a journalist and regional community empowerment director with Univision, Riley Bunch, public policy reporter for GPB News, and GPB politics reporter Stephen Fowler, and Tia Mitchell, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Washington correspondent. What I hope we can do in this part of, of our program is try to sort through the, what's become a confuse, confusing situation around masks, the Delta variant, uh, all of the things surrounding the pandemic, which we, I think we all thought and we we're all hoping was uh, getting behind us. I know uh, we have been in conversations at the uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution about our schedule for getting back to the office, as have so many other organizations. And you have to wonder if, if all that's in jeopardy now. Let, let's let's focus on a very concrete development that happened late yesterday. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms issued an executive order mandating residents wear a mask when indoors in a public place, even if they have been vaccinated. Now, this order applies to private businesses and public property, the mayor uh, said. And this is very different from what the governor has said, but maybe not so different from what the president has said and the CDD has said and other people are saying. So um, let's kind of start there, Tia, from, from Washington. What's going on up there? I mean, where is this headed? What's the message from the Biden administration? Well, you know, I, first of all, I think the CDC, the Biden administration is saying they are following the CDC. Any guidance about masks, vaccinating, social distancing, Biden's administration has made clear they are going to defer to the CDC. The CDC are not wizards. They're not fortune tellers. They are doctors doing the best they can with a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. And I think that's what, you know, yes, we're all frustrated. Do we wear a mask? Do we not wear a mask? Is it safe to be around people? Is it not to be safe around people? What's the benefit of the vaccine if you can still get the virus? Those are all, you know, appropriate questions for us to be asking. 
and the CDC is doing its best to answer those questions with the information they have at any given time. But things change, new variants, new data, new information. And unfortunately, it has become a culture war. It has become partisan. And so instead of, you know, leaders being able to say the, the, the guidance has changed based on how the virus has changed, which no one can control, and is based on how data has changed, now it's become, it's used on, um, particularly by conservatives to say, see, look, they can't get it straight, and we just don't want to have to change with the times. And I think that can be damaging because we have to remember people are dying of the coronavirus, and it's not just the elderly. It's not just the obese. There are children in the hospital in Atlanta right now with the coronavirus. So do we want to be safe or do we want to just be comfortable? And and that's a that's a division. Well, well, one of those big uh, points of contention is what to do in schools, right, Mariella? I mean, we have very different. We're hearing very different things uh, from different school districts, and of course, it's been a point of tension in some of the largest districts uh, here in Metro Atlanta and in the state. Um, but it's starting to look more and more like parents will have big questions about whether to send their kids to school. Correct. And, and I'm glad that Winnet County uh, is requiring masks and, and took that bold step because they are the largest school district in our state. And, you know, a lot of people follow Winnet County. Uh, but the reality is, is that we have uh, two pandemics, uh, one on the decline among the people who got the vaccine and the other one on, on the unvaccinated. And when we look at our leaders for guidance, then we have Governor Kemp, who has joined other Republican governors in casting requirements as an assault on personal liberties. Uh, and, you know, he is restricting uh, vaccine passports and he's opposing uh, school mask mandates. And uh, it is a war uh, between uh, information. Uh, we have uh, a ranging uh, misinformation getting hold of people. And like Tia said, you know, every time that the CDC uh, changes because they've seen the data and they require something uh, is used as, as a point to say, look, they don't know what they're doing. Uh, it, it's the same arguments when we are talking about climate change. If, you know, many people say, oh, the, 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 the meteorologists cannot figure out where the hurricane is going to hit. So how are they, we going to trust them in, in climate change? Well, that is science. We, we have to look at the data. And unfortunately, the people who are paying the price are, are the vaccinated individuals uh, because now we're going to have to use masks again because a large portion of the population will not get vaccinated. Well, uh, it is confusing, right? Because, as a, you know, again, in terms of, of the information we know, no vaccine is 100% effective at preventing COVID-19. Um, I mean, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are about 95% effective, according to the best information we have with the original virus. But with the Delta variant, that that has fallen somewhat to about 
And again, it doesn't mean that people won't be uh, won't get COVID. It just means that um, they're less likely to get it, and if they get it, it is much less serious. And I think that that is is a point of confusion, in the sense that uh, why, if I'm vaccinated, why should I have to wear a mask? And uh, if I don't want to get vaccinated, everyone else is. Um, so, I mean. Stephen, the governor has not never been behind a mask mandate, and I, I it would be hard to believe he would get behind one now, right? Right. Well, he actually said last night that Georgia's not going backwards. There's not going to be a lockdown. There's not going to be a mask mandate. You know, he and Dr. Toomey and other leaders have all gotten vaccinations and encouraged people to get vaccinations, but he's not going to be the one to make a blanket unilateral statement that Georgia needs to be locked down or that Georgia needs to have a mandate for things. And it's a very difficult spot politically to be in. I mean, you know, you have people that are trying to make a hashtag Kemp kills trending because they say that the governor bears responsibility for people that have died because of the COVID-19 pandemic. You have people that have led protests over the thought of a, another lockdown or when Governor Kemp did shut things down last year and things. And so, you know, I don't think, you know, the governor's not trying to say, you know, everything goes, everyone can do what they want. I don't care about public health and safety. But really, when you've seen just the visceral reaction that some people have had to mask mandates and to the vaccine, you know, it, it seems like he's doing the what he thinks is the right thing and the best thing that he can and strongly encourage people to make the right choice and get vaccinated and to wear a mask when appropriate. But, you know, politically, it just seems like this is a no-win situation for anyone involved. Riley, as parents begin thinking about sending their kids back to school, especially so many parents who don't have, whose kids are not vaccinated because they're not eligible to be yet, um, all of a sudden school districts are thrown right back into the middle of this uh not just this uh, public health crisis, but the all the politics around it. Well, absolutely. You know, when I was thinking, heard all this news come out yesterday, you know, Kemp's statement that he wasn't going to impose masks and then uh, Mayor Bottoms, her executive order imposing them. You know, I, it was like deja vu. You know, we've seen this happen before. We saw this happen last summer. We saw the exact same situation between the state and the city play out and even taken to court, even though, you know, that was dropped. Um, so as a parent, as a teacher, as as anyone on the ground it's we're farther into the pandemic the virus has changed but there's still kind of no consensus over how to handle it there's still this political back and forth Kemp's not going to impose a mask mandate we know that he his strategy is to encourage people to get vaccinated but you know the the unvaccinated population is stall is seeing the highest rates and is stalled. Our vaccination rate is stalled. So it's hard when you think about putting your child or being a teacher walking into a school right now. You know, it's we're a year later, but it's still the same questions and still the same concerns. Mariella, uh, there has been um, you know suspicion of the vaccination among communities of color. Uh, and now organizations are uh, beginning to, in some cases, mandate vaccinations or proof of vaccinations, although the governor has been clear that he will not allow any state um, uh, state uh, of Georgia uh, organization to demand that of their employees. 
but again, uh, can uh, what are people supposed to think about that? Uh, well, there, according to experts, a lot of uh, there's a variety of reasons why people are not getting vaccinated. Is some people in in some cases minorities are in this category. They lack. Uh, access to vaccines, you know, and so there are some efforts by community organizations to go to where uh, they are and, and, you know, knock on doors, etc. Those are being successful. And I'm, I'm happy to see also that among Latinos, the, the vaccination rates have gone up. So that's good news. But uh, there's also a concern about the vaccine side effect and also small trust uh, on the in the vaccines and the institutions behind the vaccines. Uh, you know, a lot of people believe in conspiracy theories that are running rampant on social media, especially platforms like uh, WhatsApp, uh, where you have a lot of videos with so-called experts telling you that you don't need to get vaccinated and, or the vaccine was not properly done. Um, and, you know, those reasons sometimes overlap and compound. Uh, if some people, the young people, they don't see COVID as a big threat, they might think, well, it's not worth the ha having the side effects. And uh, it, it, they don't see the need for them to be contributors to uh to the well-being of the rest of the population. But I think we also have to see more stories on the news of places where people are getting vaccinated and returning to normal. I think CNN had a, uh, an article yesterday about uh, people in Vermont and 83% of the population has been vaccinated and you see them, you know, enjoying uh, their lives in going back to normal and the hospitals are not in crisis. So I think we have to show that also as proof that if a lot of people get vaccinated, then we are not going to have these problems of getting back to wearing masks and worrying about our kids going to school. So the media has a, play, uh, a role to play in this showing the benefits of communities who have been vaccinated. Tia, the president has taken, uh, I mean, his tone is very, I don't know if I would call it aggressive, but he seems to be tempted to demand uh, federal employees be vaccinated and to support um, that kind of approach, uh, even in the private sector. Yes, I think what the Biden approach looks like it's going to be is number one, it does seem like they are going to mandate vaccines for certain federal employees, if not all. For example, the VA has mandated vaccines, knowing that many VA employees are working in VA hospitals and clinics with elderly veterans. But there could be other federal agencies, if not all, that say, if you work for us, you have to get vaccinated. But what the Biden administration is also doing is applauding the private sector for um, requiring vaccines or at least incur strongly encouraging vaccinations through incentives. And you're seeing that in a lot of ways 
and it's starting to happen. You know, we see what the NFL has done, not necessarily requiring vaccines, but making it very costly for players who aren't vaccinated and later get coronavirus. And we're seeing a lot of companies starting to say, we want our employees to be vaccinated. And we know that'll be harder for Republicans to oppose because what Republicans have have said all along during this pandemic is that businesses should be able to decide for themselves, not government, how to handle things, how to run their business. And so now it's working in the Biden administration's favor in some ways because large companies are starting to say, yeah, we think vaccines are necessary, and that's helping to increase vaccination rates. Now, you mentioned uh, you mentioned large companies, but it's also the uh, Biden administration has found itself a little bit at odds with labor unions, right? Because the labor unions can also, you know, depending, they're, they're often large, represent very, people from all different walks of life who may or may not support uh, mandated vaccinations. Right. And we've seen um, labor unions kind of come out and say they don't agree with um, a company requiring vaccinations. And again, it remains to be seen if that becomes, you know, a legal issue. You know, most companies are not saying there are other things you can do. They'll say get a vaccination or submit to frequent testing, for example. Um, and, And there may be religious exemptions, for example, that have been in place for vaccination, other types of vaccinations that already exist. You know, we see that a lot with schools, for example. But it is something that's going to be up for discussion as it becomes widespread, I'm sure. Well, it it, it remains to be seen as this develops. And, and I think, uh, you know, uh, Riley and, and others of you have made the point that CDC has switched its guidance. It has been changing. And some people interpret that as, well, they don't seem to know what to do. And other people see that. Well, you know, the information we have changes and the scientists learn new things. One of the controversies the CDC has been a little bit in the middle of is its uh, decision to disallow evictions. Um, now, that is they've they've done that. Uh, there have been some questions about whether they have the authority to do that. But one thing that's clear is that evictions um uh, the the moratorium on convictions ends Saturday, and there's an awful lot of concern about that. So, uh, Mariella, um, there are people who believe that in the possibility that Atlanta could just be devastated by uh, people who might be evicted. Is that a realistic concern? It is a realistic concern, and uh, you know, a, I think encouraging. Uh, news are happening that the the federal government is uh, taking some steps to uh, help the landlords and also uh, the the people who rent uh, in 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 giving some federal assistance. I think um, it was yesterday when the uh, the CFPB. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, they uh, issue a new tool. They, they release a new tool uh, to help renters and landlords access federal assistance. And that is something that we have been talking about because it's of concern to, to our community. So I think 
you know, steps like that are helpful, but are not going to be enough. And we also have to take into account that in many communities of color, access to the internet itself is a problem. So launching a online tool sometimes is not enough. So because the people they're trying to help don't don't have access to, to the internet or don't have computers, but it's, it's a step uh, in um, more more awareness about that is going to be helpful. Uh, but of course, Atlanta is going to be totally affected, and, and we're going to have to to respond to that. Atlanta is already in in crisis. You know, seeing how many people are on the streets, we have seen the rise of, of homeless homelessness in in our city. Uh, we're going to be seeing more kids also in in homeless situations. So uh, I think. Uh, we're going to have to to make an effort to provide more assistance. Uh, Riley, now there, I mean, there's been so much talk, and uh, we've had obviously uh, stories in the newspaper. The GPP has reported that there's millions upon millions of dollars of relief available. I mean, is it not working, or what's the? Well, I think. The issue that we have seen throughout the pandemic, whether it's money for housing assistance, whether it's um, stimulus money for businesses, for unemployed, is that it is very slow to roll from the top and get to the bottom, right? It has been a really difficult challenge to get federal dollars distributed in the ways that they're supposed to be distributed and distributed quickly. And I, you know, we we're kind of living with that aftermath, right? And with the eviction moratorium ending, it begs a question of, okay, when this federal assistance stops, what happens? So this just isn't, isn't just a question in eviction assistance, you know, that child care providers are worried about what happens when the federal money stops flowing. Um, and I think that's something that we're going to see a big reality of when we're kind of coming out the tail end of the pandemic. There's been so many federal dollars pumped into so many different industries, so many different aspects of life. Um, and there, there's going to be some real challenges coming out of that. And Stephen, I, I mean, I don't know how much appetite there is to help people some more, even if this eviction crisis uh, becomes more serious than some uh, believe it will be, right? I mean, politicians, uh, particularly the Republicans, have sort of had enough with the money being pumped into the uh, economy and to fight the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, there was a interview on WABE yesterday with a professor from Georgia Tech who said that almost one in four Georgia renters are estimated to be behind on rent, and Georgia has spent less than 2% of its available emergency rental assistance funding. But even with all of those things, you see a hesitancy to use federal funding to beef up services because, like Riley said, you know, when all is said and done and things are over, that's one-time money. And so I think a lot of Georgia's state fiscal success comes from conservative leaders, budgeting conservatively and spending things conservatively and not 
uh, dedicating money to things that won't be there in the future. And I think you see with a lot of this pandemic assistance and things that there are a lot of things being left on the table because, you know, there may be billions of dollars this year, but come next year or the year after that, there wouldn't necessarily be money to pay for it unless the state started paying for more things. And so, yeah, I think there's a reluctance and a hesitancy to uh, do more and invest more with money that might not be there in the future. And Tia, uh, the view from Washington, do you think that uh, people in the nation's capital uh, are remain concerned about this ev- potential eviction crisis? I do. And I think if Democrats thought they could get it done, they would try to extend the moratorium. Um, that's really not tenable right now. You know, Republicans can use the, use the filibuster. There's been a lot of discussion about this uh, reconciliation bill that Democrats are working on that will include both hard infrastructure projects and quote unquote soft infrastructure projects like, you know, housing, child care, uh, things that Democrats say are still necessary in America during the pandemic recovery. The question is, will assistance for low-income housing, assistance for renters be part of that reconciliation bill? And can they get enough votes to pass the reconciliation bill? And that's something we won't know um, for quite some time. You know, they're still working on it. It, There's still a lot of politics involved in that. Hey, thanks, Tia. Uh, It's time for our last break. So we better get that in. Uh, I can see Sam, our producer, getting a little nervous here. Um, uh, When we come back, uh, we'll... uh, We'll get into a couple of new topics. Uh, uh, This is Political Rewind on GPB. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Again, I'm Kevin Riley filling in for Bill Nygut today. With me are Mariela Romero, Riley Bunch, Stephen Fowler, and Tia Mitchell. Uh, Riley, I wanted to uh, use this last segment to talk about something you had recently reported on involving um, uh, voters who have lost their right to vote and, and are come, uh, may have a chance to come back and do it. So uh, why, don't, why don't you give us a little background on that uh, and then uh, talk about what the effort is about and where it might lead. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to talk about this today. So it was a story I reported uh, a week or so ago, and it was about a small probation reform in the legislature last year that could have potential big um, political impacts. So um, in Georgia, people on um, reform or probation and parole uh, following a prison sentence uh, have lost their right to vote. They're disenfranchised. Um, criminals. That's a long-standing, long-standing issue, and is common in other states as well. Correct? Absolutely. It, it varies across states when they do gain their right to vote back. Um, whether it's right after they finish their sentence in prison, or right after they have paid off all their fines and fees. But in Georgia, it is until you finished your full sentence, which includes community supervision. And Georgia has the highest rate per capita of individuals on community supervision than any other state in the country. This is this has been an issue. For 
for a long time. And it's an issue that criminal justice advocates have tried to address in the legislature before. You know, there's always a push every session that I've seen for felon disenfranchisement reform. Right. Um, And and last session, there was a law passed and um, it allowed for individuals on felony probation to end their sentence early, um, at three years early, if they qualify for a couple of things. So they had to pay off all their fines. They haven't had um, probation revocations. You know, they haven't been charged again with a major offense. Um, and people estimate, uh, advocates estimate that there's upwards of 48,000 Georgians that may qualify to end their sometimes decade-long probation sentences. Um, so this was billed in the General Assembly as kind of a re-entry piece of legislation. They didn't talk about voting rights when they discussed this piece. And I think that it was because it was bipartisan and there had Republicans signed on to this. So, I, you know, the sponsor, um, Senator Strickland, said that left-leaning advocacy groups and very powerful conservative lobbyist groups like the Faith and Freedom actually Coalition actually worked together on this. Um, so it was a piece of bipartisan legislation. But now these people that qualify to get off, they get their right to vote back. And we know in Georgia in elections where there it comes down to, what, 12,000 votes between Biden and former President Trump, um, that that could have a very big impact. But the problem now is, you know, letting people know they actually qualify. Mariella, what's your sense of how difficult such a process will be to navigate for people who would like to, uh, you know, qualify again to vote? Well, I think it has to, like Riley says, that the question is, will these people get information about how to re-enter that process? And it's going to be a lot of effort between advocacy groups, uh, maybe faith groups as well, uh, informing uh, people, uh, the communities that receive uh, individuals who have been uh, incarcerated and how to, to get that information to them and, and make them feel empowered and make them feel also motivated to go to the polls. So it's going to be a lot of, um, it, it has to be a lot of information and education giving to them for them to feel like their votes matter and why it's important to be civically engaged. Uh, Stephen, I've, I don't want to sound flip, but but maybe it will. Uh, how uh, Republicans uh, giving more people the right to vote? I mean, all Democrats ever do is complain about how Republicans are busy preventing people from voting. How did this happen? Well, I mean, you have to look at how Georgia's mostly moderate Republican governors have been since taking over uh, in the last couple decades. And one of the things that recently has been a push is criminal justice reform. It's something that's been done on a bipartisan level uh, from the hate crimes law to other things like that, that, you know, reforming Georgia's kind of historically harsh criminal justice system is something that both Republicans and Democrats can get behind. And what it is important to note and point out uh, in Riley's story, it notes that, you know, nationally, criminal justice reform nonprofits estimate that more than 6% of the adult African-American population is disenfranchised. That number is about the same in Georgia because of these felony convictions. So it really does have uh, an intentional impact on restoring the right to vote for a demographic that makes up about 30% of Georgia's population. And so, you know, it's it's really crucial to see 
this sort of effort take place in Georgia. Tia, on another topic, just because we're running, we're running short on time, and I've got such a long list of things that we're not going to get to. But one of the more interesting developments of late is that B.J. Pack, the former U.S. attorney in uh, for the Northern District of Georgia, which is really the Atlanta office of that of of, of the federal government, the Justice Department's prosecution prosecutor, um, he. It looks like it's going to be coming to Washington to talk to a congressional committee. So uh, lay that out for us. You know, why would that be the case and and, um, what's he going to talk about? So this all goes back to when B.J. Pack resigned at the beginning of the year. Initially, he was going to stay on through, you know, Joe Biden's inauguration, essentially. And he ended up resigning a few weeks early. And the rumors were at the time that. He resigned under duress because he was being pressured um, by Trump and Trump allies. So now Justice Department has said he's free to talk about his resignation and whether he was pressured. So uh, is that part of a larger, is that part of that whole January 6th investigation or where does that all fit in? It's part of the investigation of whether President Trump and his allies attempted to interfere in the 2020 election or the outcome of the election, the big lie, so to speak. Of course, we know that relates to the January 6th investigation, but this investigation precedes any current, the new, you know, select committee on January 6th. This investigation is more focused just on the election and it precedes and is separate from that select committee. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, that that clears it up for us. Well, one more thing while while we've got you, and and I I, I suppose I just always get, uh, love a chance to talk to Tia because uh, she's got one of the most demanding jobs in our newsroom, trying to keep track of all those folks in, from Georgia up in the Capitol. So Marjorie Taylor Greene has filed a lawsuit against Nancy Pelosi. Could you just explain that quickly for yes, us? Yes, Marjorie Taylor Greene was fined in May for refusing to wear a mask on the House floor, which at the time, this was before the CDC relaxed mask guidelines. And back then, the rule was, if you're on the House floor, you're not talking, you need to wear a mask. Green made a point, her and other conservatives were saying, we're refusing to wear our masks. And so they were fined under House rules. It was a $500 fine. It was taken out of their paycheck. And she and other lawmakers have now sued to say, you know, that's not right. You can't take our money. It's a similar argument that Representative Andrew Clyde made. He was fined for not going through the metal detectors, which was a, you know, separate rule implemented after January 6th. But they both have sued over those fines. Thanks, Tia. I hope that you're doing all the right things, including wearing masks and going through those metal detectors as you represent the Atlanta Journal-Constitution so well uh, up there in Washington. Uh, that's all the time we have for Political Rewind today. I, I'd like to thank our guests, uh, of course, Tia, uh, Stephen Fowler, Mariella Romero, and Riley Bunch. Also, thanks to producer Sam Burmistaz. Sam, I always uh, appreciate how hard you work to help me out here. Senior producer Amelia Brock and engineer Jesse Neiswanger for their work. I'm Kevin Riley. Thanks for joining us. Stay healthy. As Bill always says, get a vaccine and wear your mask and have a great rest of the day. And it's going to be as hot, the hottest day of the year today. So think about your pets and the elderly and be safe.